totally informal presentation. Uh, uh, Dr. Green will not have a prepared lecture. That's for tonight. So use your imagination. <laughs> so my name is Brad Johnson. For those of you who don't know me, I'm the chair of the physics department here at Rutgers. And uh, I have the great honor and pleasure of introducing Brian Green to you today, and uh, I think in both settings. And so let me just start so you guys can get start firing away with your imaginations. Thanks very much. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. So we can do really anything that you want to do. If people have questions, they want to just yell out and get the ball rolling. If not, I can just sort of without any forethought just jump into something. So uh, anybody have any thoughts and questions on absolutely anything? Physics, not physics, the weather. Is there, you mean, because I was thinking that having no questions is a very odd place to be in your mind. You get zero questions on absolutely everything. But yes, go ahead. Well, my uncle's a physicist, and we've kind of been talking about how with string theory, we find there's such an interest with the youth and even like the young scientists out there that it's almost creating a branch of, uh, I guess, physics that might be eclipsing other facets of physics. So I was wondering how you view that within the current like physicists. Well, I think that's a good that's a good thing, um, even though some some may not. But perhaps it's worth taking a step back. I mean, how many people are familiar with what a string theory is? Everybody. Wow. <laughs> um, just that you know. Not to put anybody on the spot. Anybody want to just give me one second? What's your thought on what string theory is? Just so I can sort of see. Uh, uh, almost everybody raised their hand. So I can, yeah, go ahead. Um, everything's made of little vibrating strings. Everything's made of little vibrating strings. What was last? <laughs> <laughs> we have no way to test. That we have no way to test. Yes. <laughs> Good. Uh, so that's the basic idea of this theory, right? So we know that for a very long time. A question that people have asked is, what is stuff made of, right? You, know, you take anything and you imagine building the most powerful microscope imaginable, and you peer deeply down into the microscopic structure, be it a piece of wood, be it the carpet, the chair, I don't care, anything, and what do you find? We know about molecules, we know about atoms, we know about the subatomic particles that make them up, electrons going around the nucleus, and so on. And I'll show you some visuals on that later, but that's a very familiar story. But then the thought is, that inside the particles that for a long time people have thought were it, the end of the story, there wasn't anything further to be found, this theory suggests that there is something to be found. And just as you indicated, it would be a little tiny vibrating filament inside every particle, as if every particle is actually a little vibrating string. That's, in a nutshell, what this theory is about. And you know, it has a long history back to the 60s. A lot of research happened by a few individuals who were off on the fringes of science at that point. They had some great breakthroughs, and a lot of people began to work on it to the point where your question then becomes relevant. There are a lot of young people who enter physics in order to work on string theory because it's a sort of seductive theory. It could be the final theory people suggest. I don't know if that's true or not. It has all sorts of weird and wonderful properties, extra dimensions and things of that sort. So it really has the capacity to fire up the imagination of people across a whole variety of disciplines. But when it comes to science, it's a magnet. It does tend to draw people in. 
So is that a problem? Some would say, well, it's leaving sort of less manpower, woman power to work on other fields. You know, to my mind, you judge what you want to work on by what you think has the capacity to have the greatest breakthrough. And one of the wonderful things with science is you let individuals make that choice because you want them to have the creative prowess, you want them to have the technical facility, you want them to have the good judgment to work on things that will yield big results, and you can't push people one way or another. You have to let them go where they feel they are bound to work in a field that has the greatest progress. So to my mind, it's a democracy of ideas. It's a marketplace of different approaches and different problems and different kinds of things you can work on, and that's all there is to it. And when the field, if it has a fantastic uh, finale and is complete, people will start to work on other things. If it has an equally visible crash and burn, and somehow it falls apart and doesn't work, people also work on other things. So I think you just let the dice roll and you let people make their own choices. I guess I uh, have one follow-up question. Where do you see with uh, the CERN particle accelerator that's going to be running in the next several years? Like, where do you see, like, I guess, instances where they could elucidate something in regards to string theory supersymmetry or something like that? Right, yeah. So, again, just uh, how many people are familiar with this machine, <laughs> this LAC machine? Almost everybody. Right, so the Large Hadron Collider, anybody have a sense of how big it is? How big it's going to be? How big? 18 kilometers out here. Anybody else? Uh, actually, I, I don't know the answer, so we'll take 18. We'll take good enough numbers A. It's certainly within a ballpark. So, yeah, it's a big tunnel. They slam stuff together, and in the debris of the collisions, they look for exotic species of particles. And if we are lucky, the hope is that you may see some signatures of string theory. What might those be? Well, there's a possibility in string theory that when you slam things together at very high energies, perhaps enough energy in these machines, but maybe not. But if there is enough energy, you could create little tiny black holes. That's one of the things that string theory says could happen. Now, that's a weird idea. I mean, I think most people, when you think about black holes, you think about big stuff in space, you know, stars collapsing, gargantuan volumes of space engulfing an enormous amount of mass. I think that's the picture we typically have in mind. But that's only one kind of black hole. According to Einstein's general relativity, if you take anything at all, I mean, you take an orange and you squeeze it down small enough and tight enough, it will be a black hole, right? I mean, you have to squeeze it pretty small and pretty tight for it to be a black hole. I mean, for the Earth, if you squeezed it sufficiently tiny, it would be a black hole, but how small would you have to make the Earth? Pretty small, too, yeah. So, I'm going to be a touch more precise than that on this one, because this one I do know the answer on. So, as big as a marble. It depends what kind of marble you have in mind. But um, it could be, you know, about half an inch. So you take the earth and you squeeze the whole dark thing so that it's half an inch across and it would become a black hole. Now that's tough to do. But <laughs> we don't really care about toughness at the moment. We care about what the laws tell us. Now what this means is, in string theory, it turns out because string theory changes, in some sense, the laws of gravity in a subtle but understood way within the context of certain models that may or may not be right. But if you take the most optimistic version of string theory, if you slam particles together at high enough energy, there's enough matter in a small enough volume of space for a black hole to form. 
1991. Now, one thing that we also learned about black holes is that they typically radiate. They spew out material. They're not completely black. There's stuff that actually can get out. And the smaller a black hole is, the more stuff that comes out in terms of how quickly it comes out. So these tiny black holes would quickly disintegrate. But they disintegrate in a very characteristic way that the detector should be able to see if it happens. So, in answer to your question, that's one thing. See microscopic black holes. That would be a real strong signature of, of these ideas. Another thing that might happen is you might actually see the different vibrational resonances of the strings. So, you know, when you play guitar, you can stroke and get a, the fundamental vibration of a given string, but if you stroke a little harder, you can get multiple overtones and so forth. And those are different vibrational modes that a given string can carry. That holds true, that idea holds true in string theory as well. And that would correspond to a string giving rise to a part of a certain mass, and then a heavier mass, and then a heavier mass still. That would be the analog of the overtones. And you might, in principle, under the most optimistic of assumptions, be able to see those as well. Those are two things that could happen. The more likely thing, I consider those both long shots. The more likely thing is to see evidence of something called supersymmetry. So the full name of string theory you may know is super string theory. The super has to do with something called supersymmetry, which to make a very long and interesting story short, tells us that for every known particle there should be a partner particle that we haven't yet seen. So the electron has a partner. The quarks have partners. We've never seen the partner particles. And the theory suggests that we haven't seen them because they're heavier than their counterparts that we have seen. Heavier particles need a bigger machine to create them. This machine in Geneva may have enough power to see those other particle species. Now that, again, would prove string theory right, but you know, to prove that supersymmetric quality right would be a real big step in the direction of these ideas being correct. Now, there's actually a bunch more, but I think that gives you the flavor for the kind of things that might happen there. So you, you just talked about the, uh, the supersymmetric part, uh, partners. If like, the superstrings you're dealing with do, in fact, have, if I'm correct, uh, infinite frequencies at which they can resonate, does that mean they have infinite partner particles? Or? Well, the different vibrational modes of a given string, the resonant modes, would not be considered partners of one another. They would be related by virtue of being in this overtone sequence, but they wouldn't be related in the manner that I was indicating between, say, an electron and its supersymmetric partner. So I think the way to think about it is there are indeed, in principle, an infinite number of resonant modes of vibration of a given string. When they become sufficiently energetic, vibrating really fast, they too become black holes. So there's a limit of the concept of particles when applied to strings of very, very high energies. But yes, you would be seeing those guys in principle, hopefully. Unlikely, but possibly. Any more qualifications, do I? <laughs> is the role of the observer, the Schrodinger's cat observer, is that implicated in the math of string theory? And if it is, is it spread universally across all 11? Or is it localized? Yeah. One or the other? So, uh, again, people familiar with this whole notion of observer? I mean, how many people have taken quantum mechanics? Only small number. Uh, 
But those who haven't taken it, are you familiar with the rough ideas or not at all? Yeah. So in, in maybe just in one sentence or two or three or ten, you know, um, so quantum mechanics is the theory of the microworld that has been developed over the course of many, many decades. And the most bizarre feature of quantum mechanics is that it breaks the Newtonian mold by saying that you can't make definite predictions. All you can do is predict likelihoods for things turning out one way or another. And, you know, we're familiar with likelihoods and probabilities at casinos and in weather reports and things of that sort, but it was a total shock when a fundamental physical theory was saying that probabilities were embedded so thoroughly within the structure of the laws of physics themselves. You know, the only reason you have to, we think, prior to quantum mechanics, the only reason why, you know, the uh, meteorologist has to make probabilistic statements about the weather is because it's too complicated. Don't have all the information, don't have all the data, don't have the computing power necessary to make absolute definite predictions about whether or not it will rain. But, according to Newton, and according to the way everybody thought prior to about 1915, 1920, if you had a very, very powerful computer, and if you had all the data necessary, you could predict with certainty whether or not it will rain tomorrow. Quantum mechanics said, actually, that reasoning is false. The best you can do is predict probabilities. 30% chance a particle will be found here, 70% here, or another experiment, 22% here, 30% here, 40% there, and so forth. Now, that's a very strange way of doing physics. It was born out by experiments. When they did the experiments, they found the electron, say, 20% of the time here, 30% of the time here, and 40% of the time here, just as the math said. But the reason why it's strange is, you're naturally led to ask, you know, how does the fuzzy world of probabilities 20%, 30%, 22%, how does that give rise to the definite world of observations in the world around us? You know, it's not as though you find sort of 20% of an electron over here and 30% of it over here. And any given experiment, you always find it one place or another. So where does this fuzzy quantum probabilistic haze, how does it turn into the definite hard reality that we all experience? And that's where some people said the observer comes in. And this comes from Niels Bohr, who is a very powerful personality and great scientist as well. And he convinced a whole generation of scientists that what you need to do in physics is you have the world that you're trying to describe, and then you have the observer trying to describe it. And you have to make a clean separation between the two. And the idea is, it's when the observer kind of comes on the scene and does a measurement that this fuzzy quantum probabilistic case snaps to attention and becomes a definite reality. It's upon observation. Now, Einstein famously said, well, wait a second. Are you trying to tell me that the moon's not there if I'm not looking at it? <laughs> and uh, they basically said, yeah, that's what we're trying to say. And Einstein said, that's nutty. But the data kept supporting this idea, and this forceful personality of Bohr kept people thinking in this way. Since then, since the 30s, 40s, 50s, on to today, a more refined way of thinking about quantum mechanics has gradually emerged. And as it has emerged, the role of the observer has become less and less special. So if you were to ask me what's my view today, my view is that the observer has nothing to do
what about the full answer to this question? I consider this one of the biggest unsolved questions. How does the fuzzy haze turn into a definite reality? We don't know. But I don't think it's the observer. And best, what you need to realize is that in the early days of quantum mechanics, in order to be able to carry on the analysis, to keep things simple, people had idealized visions of the systems they were studying. A single electron in a box, a single atom in a box, very simple systems, leaving out all interaction with the environment. And people then realized if you do more realistic situations, which they could do as they became more and more familiar with the theory, when you include the environment, I don't care if it's an, an observer or a chair, when you include the environment, the environmental interaction seems to have the capacity to coax the fuzzy haze into a definite reality. But we've not been able to nail that down, but that seems to at least be part of where the answer is. I mean, the whole observer thing is totally odd because you, wanted, you run into questions, okay, what was the universe like before humans? No one was observing. So was the universe fuzzy, 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 quantum fuzziness until humans came on the scene and looked? And then it became a definite reality? Well, that sounds weird. You know, or, you know, maybe not humans. Could it be an ape? If an ape looked, would that be enough of sort of an observer to cause this definite Well, You know, would an amoeba do it? You know, I mean, there are actually conversations and discussions of real physicists debating whether or not a dog would be an adequate observer to collapse the quantum probabilities into a definite reality. <laughs> That's the kind of strange place where these ideas led to. And uh, I, I think it's all a complete red herring. I don't think, you know, consciousness, I don't think has anything to do with it. But there are others who disagree. You know, there's John Weir, who, um, famous physicist, um, who has this whole notion that, you know, the universe gives rise to us, but it's our observations that sort of give rise to the definite universe in this wonderful cycle of interdependency. Uh, I like ideas like that all fuzzy and warm, but um, I don't see how that could possibly be true. But yeah. Um, what do you think about the relationship between like loop quantum gravity and string theory? I've heard that they could be the same thing, uh, but I haven't heard anything lately. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, so there's an alternate approach to um, achieve the kinds of goals that string theory has set for itself, which we didn't really discuss here, but I'll discuss more later. Giving a unified description of, of matter, putting gravity and quantum mechanics together and so forth. And the alternate approach is called loop quantum gravity. And, you know, a lot of smart people are working on that theory. You know, I, um, I don't think it's the right way to go. But that's probably obvious, because if I did, I'd be working on it. Uh, and if you had one of those folks here, I'm sure they would say the reverse. And But the bottom line is, do I think that string theory and loop and gravity are, are sort of building the same theory? I, I said so in one of my books, in an optimistic, warm, fuzzy moment. Um, I, don't, I don't see it. I don't see it right now. And, um, you know, I think it's healthy that there are many approaches. You know, when everybody's working on one approach, that usually means that things are getting stale. So I think it's good that there are alternate approaches. But, you know, I, I don't think they're building the same theory. So it'll be interesting to see 10 years from now. 
is one right? Is the other right? Are, are both wrong? I mean, that's the more likely thing. You know, people don't people don't realize, but I mean, maybe do. But you know, ninety nine point nine percent of everything that we do is wrong. That's just what science is. You are wrong, absolutely most of the time. Now, I don't mean wrong in the sense you made a mistake. You know, hopefully your papers are self-consistent, your calculations are right within a given set of assumptions, but that framework that you are working within is almost always wrong. And that's exciting because it gives you a sense of freedom, right? I mean, you don't want to be completely nutty with your ideas, but once you recognize that almost everything you think about during your entire lifetime is going to be wrong in the grand sense of not being realized in nature, then you know, you allow your creativity and your mind a certain degree of freedom to try out new things. And that's a good thing. So, uh, following the course of history, it's likely that we just don't have the right theory yet. I don't think, for instance, that string theory, if it proves to be wrong, will be utterly wrong. I think it will likely be a stepping stone to a deeper understanding, just as every previous theory that we have worked on that has stuck around has been a stepping stone to get us to where we are now. So I think that's a likely state of affairs. Can we talk about probability again? Um, sure. So when you're talking about how um, when you make observations and the, the whole segue between uh, the quantum fuzziness and the real world, uh, I always thought the reason why there was a real world that seemed concrete was one where looking at a very large scale, right? So uh, the scale at which the quantum fuzziness implies that is extremely small. Yes. So it's like the sum of all these probabilities make it seem solid. Just yes. You put a gas in a room, the pressure is constant, even though the motion is pretty random. Yeah. And you could have all the particles or nothing on the corner. But so why is that a problem? I'll tell you why it's a problem. It was a line of thought that certainly guided the early practitioners, and it's what inspired the Copenhagen School that Bohr led to envision the kind of split that I was mentioning, and which you've made more precise. Split between observer and observed in the minds of many was a split between a big sort of classical being and a tiny quantum realm. And that's the kind of split that they had in mind. There are a number of problems with that. The first and perhaps most obvious one is where do you actually draw the line? Where does the small quantum turn into big classical? Where does that happen? Is it a sharp divide? Is there sort of a, a signpost that says quantum laws don't work anymore past here, past this lane scale? And nowhere in the math is there any indication of some clean separation between classical big things which use Newton's laws and quantum small things that use Schrodinger's laws. Not there. But an even more pressing problem, well, give me two pressing problems. So one pressing problem is as technology has progressed, people have been able to push quantum properties of systems to ever larger scales. So it used to be you would do an experiment on single particles, a group of particles, but now, you know, there are experiments where quantum properties are observed in systems of billions and trillions of particles. Now, that's still small compared to us, but it's creeping up. You know, so the quantum realm in the basement is, you know, spiraling up the staircase. 
there's no indication that if technology gets better, they won't be able to have you know a macroscopic, in some well-defined sense, quantum system. So that's second problem. But the most pressing of all, which is a touch more technical, is this. Quantum mechanics <coughs> is bizarre because let's just take the position of a particle. If it says a particle has a 50% chance of being here and a 50% chance of being here, more precisely, it actually says that before you look, before the observer comes on the scene in the old language, the particle's kind of in both places. It's part here, part here. Not that half of it's here and half it's here. The particle itself is partly here and partly here. Two places at once. Now, I am certainly a big being, a big classical being, but I think I'm made up of those very same particles that quantum mechanics is meant to describe. So I think that I am a big bag of particles, each of whom is described by quantum mechanics, and then I suspect that the whole thing is really described by quantum mechanics. And if you take that idea seriously, to the same way that describe the pieces or the things that describe the whole, then if I look at an electron, which is in this fuzzy mixture of being here and here, what quantum mechanics says, brute force quantum mechanics says, it says that I should actually experience the particle being here and experience it being there. That's what the laws say. But I've never experienced that. So there's got to be something that we're missing in between the two. And just drawing a divine line in the sand and saying the laws stop when it comes to big things doesn't have any real operational significance if you're not telling me why it stops, how it stops, or where it stops. And no one's ever been able to do that in any sensible way. Um, well, where the uncertainty fuzzy thing comes from is uh, thinking of particles as, as waves, right? Now, if you think about it as waves, aren't the wavelengths so small that just from, like, observation, you wouldn't be able to see them anyway? Like, doesn't, like you wouldn't really experience yourself being, like, three feet away from yourself. It would be, like, very small distance, right? Well, you're right. In any sort of everyday situation, if you consider a human being to be a quantum wave, mm -hmm. that quantum wave would be you know, very sharply peaked right around the location that the person is. And that's certainly true. But from a theoretical point of view of trying to understand the foundations of physics, there's absolutely nothing that prevents the situation arising where the wave associated with a big object is partly here and has another part over here. There's absolutely nothing that forbids that. It would, it, it would be hard to set it up from a standpoint of an experimental physicist, but if the quantum laws are the laws, then that is an absolutely bonafide, sensible configuration of the so-called quantum wave function to be in. But, you know, the case that I was describing is a little bit easier to comprehend because it's just a matter of I'm looking. I'm looking at a quantum system and it's the electron, which is partly here and partly there. So I, by virtue of looking, should be sensitive to both if I'm governed by the same laws that the particles are. So my brain, in some sense, should partly see the electron there and partly see it there. And it was, you know, it was a poor Heisenberg, I'm sorry, Schrodinger, who, who made this most manifest with his cat, right? I mean, the whole point of the cat experiment was to say, imagine you have, you know, a cat in a box, 
and you have a little vial of poison, okay? And whether or not that vial is opened depends upon whether a given particle, say an electron, goes this way or this way. Now, what if you set the electron up in one of these mixtures, these quantum mixtures of going this way and going that way? Well, that would suggest that the vial both opens and doesn't open. And you might say, well, that's in the quantum realm. It's so small, we won't see it. But then the cat will either breathe in the poison or it won't. So you can amplify the tiny quantum realm into the macroscopic realm. So now you're in a situation where if the electron goes this way or this way, if the cat is dead or alive, would suggest that the cat's a mixture of being dead or alive inside the box. So what did people say? I said, well, the observer comes and opens it up, and in the act of observation, the cat becomes either dead or alive. Before you look, the cat was in a mixture. I mean, that's crazy, right? Seems crazy. Maybe it's true. You know, other people have suggested, well, there are many, many universes. What happens is in one universe, the electron goes this way and the cat is alive. In another universe, it goes the other direction and the cat is dead. So what really happens is that the universe splits into two copies, where in one universe you go open and it's alive, and in the other universe you open and it's dead. It's not that it was alive and dead together, it was alive and dead in two different universes. You see the kind of excesses that this issue of bridging the quantum world with the everyday world is forcing people into. We've not solved it yet. I don't know, are there many worlds or not? You know, other people suggested even more exotic many minds. There's a many minds interpretation of quantum and not many worlds. But said, given individual, you know, has many minds, you know, sort of a schizophrenic kind of thing where, you know, part of your mind sees it alive, the other part sees it dead, and those parts don't really communicate. So you've got many minds inside your head. At least that doesn't require many worlds. It's just many minds. Again, a little nutty. Somebody else who hasn't, uh, but uh, I think we're cycling around again. So okay. Yeah. So, uh, regarding dark energy, I think that um, this is the director of formula that said, I mean, I watched ideas, several big ones about dark energy, but I think the Fermilab folks said that they think that what the deal is that there's, that there's so much mass outside the edges the envelope of our own universe that it's actually pulling things, it's pulling the universe apart rather than that rapid acceleration of the expansion happening as a result of
there are more exotic theories that people, even in string theory, have come to, which would suggest that there might be a boundary to the universe, that you know you could walk along and sort of hit a wall. Of course, the natural question is, you know, what if you sort of punch through that wall? You know, you know what, what's on the other side? And at least in string theory, the answer would be there, there's no sense to that statement. There simply is nothing there. It's not that the universe is something of finite size embedded in something bigger, and you just need a bigger bulldozer to poke a hole through to see what's happening out there. At least in the version of string theory, there might be a boundary. There's simply nothing else. So in all of those situations, there really wouldn't be a sense of stuff outside the universe pulling. Now, so I, I don't know the exact context in which that particular supposition was made, but in any of the traditional and even somewhat exotic ways of thinking about the shape of the universe, it's really hard to envision something outside of it pulling. So the more conventional answer, which is the one that you mentioned, is still the one that's most favored. And maybe I should take a step back and simply say, how many people are familiar with dark energy? Most people. Yeah, so this is an idea that came from 1998, observations of the expansion of the universe, which showed that the expansion is speeding up, not slowing down. If it's speeding up, that suggests you need some sort of thing pushing it, some repulsive force. And, you know, wonderfully, people realize that Einstein himself told us how to get a repulsive force on cosmic scales. Gravity itself is repulsive. There is such thing as repulsive gravity, so long as the source of gravity is not ordinary matter, it's not the Earth, it's not the Moon, it's not the Sun, but rather it's this thing that has been called dark energy for lack of understanding what it is. But there is a substance whose mathematical form we can describe really well. We don't know where it comes from or if it truly exists, but the math holds together perfectly for the existence of a substance that would permeate all space, would have some energy, wouldn't give off light, so it would be dark. And that dark energy, in the context of Einstein's theory, would yield a repulsive gravity that would push everything apart. And that is still the best explanation for the data. And that's in string theory? That's even beyond string theory. So you don't need string theory to have dark energy. All you really need is general relativity and then some very basic elements of, of standard particle physics. I guess my question is, is if the string theory bridges, you know, the opposing philosophies or the yeah. sciences, um, if it bridges those, then would string theory predict that? I, I wish I knew the answer. You, you know, dark energy can fit within string theory. So there was a time when people thought, that there's no way that string theory could ever even accommodate dark energy. And that was just people hadn't thought about the theory hard enough. It was then shown in a way that isn't particularly compelling, but at least establishes the possibility that string theory certainly can embrace this idea of dark energy. Whether it does or not depends upon details that we don't yet understand well enough. But there is complete capacity within the theory for there to be dark energy as described in more conventional theories. So, as um, you said earlier, that uh, superstring theory sort of treats gravity as a quantum nature. Um, in that same vein, uh, we're discussing you know, the electron being in both places at once and having a similar effect. When you treat gravity that way, does that 
perhaps allow a mechanism for explaining inertia as a sort of Knox principle sort of uh, action at a distance sort of thing. Is there any research in that field? Or? Um, to, to first approximation, the answer is no, in the sense of is there research in that area. But, you know, Mach's principle is a very subtle, subtle principle. And I don't know if you've looked at my second book, but it was the early chapters were sort of all motivated by my own struggles with Mach's principle. And I wouldn't say that string theory has given any decidedly new way of thinking about Mach's principle. Modulo one development that a couple of guys in my research group have completed. And it's, you know, they'd started the work when they were there, and they're, they're now elsewhere. They have found a version, if you will, of Mach's principle. It doesn't really rely on string theory, but does rely upon a reframing of, of Mach's ideas, where there's a kind of energy and matter that one ordinarily wouldn't include in a, a traditional formulation of general relativity. And they found that if you were to include this, and there's a natural motivation that they get for including it, then Mach's ideas, in some sense, have an incarnation in general relativity with this change. You know, Einstein himself famously rejected Mach's ideas by the time, by the end of his life. And these two guys were trying to resurrect a version of Einstein's theory that would be more compatible with it. It's interesting. I wouldn't say that it's compelling. It does suggest that Mach's ideas may have been rejected prematurely, but I haven't seen string theory give anything specific to uh, that whole line of research. Um, kind of getting back to quantum mechanics, how do you respond to people misconstruing uh, quantum mechanics or quantum theory into like pseudoscientific claims about the universe and observing stuff and whatever? Well, if it's if it's harmless. I don't, I don't particularly mind. You know, um, you know the problem, I, I guess, here's my overall view. My overall view is, and I find it a missed opportunity when people invoke the language and ideas of, say, quantum physics without really understanding what those ideas are. Because in almost every application, in a sort of pseudoscientific context of, of quantum ideas, it always struck me that the real implications and the real ideas are so much more fascinating and so much more exciting than even the made-up ideas. Um, so it always has it's just felt to me if only those people would have put the energy and effort into learning the truth, then they would have been even happier with where quantum physics goes than with the particular nonsensical direction they took it. But, you know, most of the time, well, well, not always, these attempts to use quantum physics in strange and non-scientific ways, you know, if it makes people happy and doesn't hurt anybody, you know, I, I sort of slightly don't object, you know. Um, but, you know, I guess what the problem is, though, you know, with the rise of, of you know, the Internet and sort of a free flow of information, what happens, unfortunately, is, you know, strange ideas that might have stayed within a small community of people, and if they want to think about things that way, it's fine. All of a sudden, everybody has access to it, and if 
there's sort of a critical mass of attention on certain bizarre ideas, all of a sudden many people are now thinking this way, and that, that's somewhat unfortunate.
each one corresponding to one of the solutions of the equations of string theory. And then people have suggested maybe what you need to do is a statistical analysis, because 10 to the 500 is too many to examine each one, one by one. But if you could do a statistical analysis and find that there's some sort of common property that many of them have, or if you can find that universes like ours are represented by many in some statistical sense of these universes, maybe that's a good thing. Yeah, you know, bottom line is it's a completely different kind of probability than in quantum mechanics. It's not a fundamental probability. It's just a statistical approach because there's so many solutions and we don't have fast enough computers or brains to deal with them all. You know, my feeling is that there's much more that we need to understand before we can take those kind of statistical approaches seriously. But, you know, people are doing what they can in trying to deal with a very difficult mathematical problem. Uh, I was wondering what current implications string theory are, has for cosmology. If there's like some eternal basis for reality, or if I don't know something else. Yeah, that, that's a great question. You know, we uh, we have an institute at Columbia that's dedicated to the interface of string theory and cosmology, and people are working very hard right now. Literally, hopefully, right now. <laughs> the office next to mine at Columbia trying to um, understand cosmology according to string theory. And there are a lot of interesting ideas. One possibility is that uh, the universe might uh, be eternal in time, cyclic, rather than there being a big bang and then it expands and has some far future behavior that we can speculate on. Instead of that, the universe has a big bang, expands for a while, in some sense contracts, goes through a kind of crunch phase and does a big bang again over and over and over again. That's one of the ideas that has come out of, of results of string theory. Others are trying to do other things. So for instance, our group has been spending some time trying to see if you could test string theory, not just with the Large Hadron Collider that we were talking about, but maybe through astronomical observations. Could it be that string theory leaves imprints on things like the cosmic microwave background radiation? That's what we're doing. So I think it's a, a very fruitful arena because a theory that is this deep and describes the universe hopefully in such a fundamental way ought to be able to give us a coherent story of the history of the universe. And that's what we're trying to extract from it. It's hard. But that's, I'd say, the biggest goal for the theory, to give us a compelling, predictive theory of cosmology. I've got a basic question. I've been, is there emptiness in string theory? I mean, how does that... Well, I, that's a question that I, I would answer even just going back to quantum mechanics, which is part of string theory. String theory is right. It certainly embraces quantum mechanics. And um, <clears throat> what we've learned is that the concept of emptiness or the concept of nothingness is a very subtle one. According to Newton, you know, emptiness, nothingness, is a very simple idea. Just take the stuff out, Okay. All of it, even the air molecules, just take it out and then you've got nothing. Emptiness. Yeah, quantum physics says, well, there is no such thing as a state in which you've truly got nothing. Because the uncertainty principle itself demands that in any region of space there's a kind of quantum jitter, a kind of quantum uncertainty in which even, say, the electromagnetic field even if it was in a completely unexcited state, nothing, empty, according to Newton, quantum physics says, well, actually, it'll jitter a little bit. You know, 
gravitational field too. So always have a value that might hover around zero emptiness, but it won't truly be empty. Things will be happening. And in a sense, the, the concept of nothingness is you know, not only subtle, but one way to think about the dark energy that we were talking about before is, you know, that would be an energy that fills everything. So it's not as though there'd be a region, if these ideas are correct, where it wouldn't be there. So the emptiest, the closest to nothing that you could get, if these ideas are correct, would be a region of space filled with this dark energy. And this nothingness, this dark energy, would be responsible for the fate of the universe. So it's not just sort of a subtle esoteric idea. So, in your book, you talk about how strings that have required extra dimensions. Extra dimensions, that's how I was kind of curious about that. That's kind of a cool idea. Yeah, I, I, I think it is a cool idea. You know, when I was going to graduate school before I started, I heard about the idea of extra dimensions. This is really pre string theory being something that was on the radar screen of people. There were extra-dimensional theories that people had proposed going way, way back into 1919, it turns out. And um, to me, just the idea that there'd be more than this, this, and this, even though we don't see it, you know, it's a fascinating idea. And then the wonderful thing is string theory came along, and it didn't just suggest that you might want to look at the possibility of more than three dimensions. It demands. The theory doesn't work if you don't have extra dimensions. And this set off a whole flurry of activity, which I certainly was uh, a participant in for you know, a good, um, a good you know, 15 years on trying to understand the extra dimensions that string theory requires, their shape, their size, what observational consequences they might have. And we have a whole well-developed mathematical theory of the extra dimensions. But again, the problem is, and this can make the statement from before more concrete, when I said that there are 10 to the 500 possible universes from the 10 to the 500 solutions to the equations of string theory, roughly what I really mean is there are 10 to the 500 different forms for the extra dimensions. They might look like this, they might look like that, they might look like this. And every different shape, every different form gives rise to a different universe. So in some sense, the whole problem is how do we find the exact shape of the extra dimensions? Theoretically, using the math. Or observationally, using data that perhaps the LHC would do. I think that in your video, you said there are 11 other dimensions. Are you still coming to that number? And does that match with Ed Whitman's uh, in theory? Did he say 7 or did he say 11? Uh, he said 7 extra. Oh. Okay. When you take the 4, we know that you're back to 11. So yeah, 11 is a pretty, pretty firm number. Again, always within a certain set of assumptions. You know, there are versions of string theory that gain less attention called non-critical string theories where the number of dimensions can differ. These theories are somewhat more difficult to deal with and they require certain special assumptions. So most, you know, 95% of the attention goes to the so-called critical case, which we understand better. It's very hard to get a universe, though, in which there are precisely four dimensions. 
So the idea of extra, the, the general idea of extra, that's very solid. The precise number does depend upon the details. Okay. Eleven. Yeah, eleven is definitely the case that uh, we understand best. And it doesn't seem that within the confines of those assumptions that number will ever change. And they're all within this universe. Yes. Okay. So, so again, we, you know, if you're thinking about a, a multiverse theory, which does come up from a variety of point of view, uh, you can imagine a world completely separate from ours. But whenever we talk about strings and extra dimensions, we're talking about stuff in this universe. Okay. Okay, why don't we make that the last one, because I think that the president of the university would like to meet our speaker for this evening, so. But let's thank him again for taking the And thank you guys for coming.